0: Open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, in our ongoing series in 1 Peter. We'll be going through verses 18 through 22 in 1 Peter 3 this morning, and the message is entitled, Vindication at Last. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, So look at God's word together. Well, first, as we begin, there are two things in which I really, really like. I admit it, I like it too much. Those two things are winning and being right. It's really kind of sad, actually, but I know that many of you can relate to me here. Even as late as last night, I was uh, playing Go Fish with my seven-year-old daughter and it was sad how much I wanted to win. Go fish. In fact, I'd won the three previous games. And last night, I met my defeat. But the sad thing is, it really disturbed me. <laughs> I wanted to win. She barely even knew how to play the game. Me? No, no, no. I don't play for entertainment. I play to win. Secondly, I, I love being right. Identify, I love being Right? Some people react differently when confronted or perhaps in an argument or debate with someone. For me, I don't get hysterical. That's not my personality. I get historical. I'm going to give you every fact. I'm going to love you every fact that I know and marshal. I'm going to go through the history, if need be, to show you why I am the one who is right, no matter what the detail, no matter how trivial it may be. It's true. You can relate, can't you? in some way or fashion. Sadly, often, it's my pride that is driving my desire to be right and to win. But here's the question as we begin this morning. Is it ever okay to want to be right and to be shown to be right? That is, to be vindicated in what you say and what you don't say, in what you believe in, in the choices that you have made? Christian, all those who are here this morning, you who have placed your saving faith in Christ Jesus, you have the hope of vindication. That's where we're going this morning. But when I say vindication, I'm not simply meaning only just being right. You see, when Scripture speaks of this word vindication, it's often speaking more than just being right. But rather, it speaks of the rescue of the innocent, of deliverance, and the punishment of the guilty. King David put it this way in one of his songs, in Psalm 35, verses 23 to 34, excuse me, 23 and 24, I want you to hear David's heart-wrenching plea and hear the audacity as well. Here's what he says, speaking and singing to God. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and let them, his enemies, not rejoice over me. Now, I believe in many ways this psalm points to Christ Jesus, King Jesus, who indeed was vindicated. But I also believe this psalm is instructive for us as those who are in Christ who will also one day be vindicated. Suffering Christian, one day you'll be shown to be right, spectacularly right, and vindicated for the choices you've made to follow Christ. But it won't be because of your Inherent righteousness. No, because of the righteousness of Christ, the victorious and vindicated one. So really the question we're drilling down into this morning is this. Do you believe this? Do you have the stamina, the stamina to wait? God in our text this morning through Peter wants to help you. He wants to extend your sight He wants to extend my sight beyond what we can see, to extend our sight beyond what we can naturally see all the way to heaven and to eternity. He wants to give us eyes of faith, a faith that distinguishes between the beginning and the end, a faith which properly exegetes the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus this is a faith church that identifies with Christ not only in his suffering. We've been talking for many weeks now, properly so, about identifying with Christ as our example, as in his suffering. But do we have, church, a full orb gospel that identifies with Christ not only in his suffering, but also in his exaltation, also in his glory, also in his vindication? If you do not had this full-orbed gospel. You will not endure. You will not endure when the going gets tough. You will become disillusioned, even embittered. All hope and joy will flee. How about church? May it not be. The good word for us today from God's word is simply this. I'll put it on the screen. Our main point this morning God will vindicate those who endure righteous suffering. Do you believe it? Let's pray. The oh Lord, we're asking this morning that you would grant us the gift of faith, that you would open our eyes to see beyond what our natural eyes can perceive. Lord, we're asking that you would give us a clarity this morning that we need, and with that, an abiding hope that rests fully in you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's now read our text for this morning. Once again, starting in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. We read the following. God's word to us, church. For Christ also suffered once for sins, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's a mouthful. But we're going to unpack this truth this morning, church. I want to start with a quote from Martin Luther regarding this text. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> well, if, well, if Martin Luther... Didn't know what this passage means. You're probably wondering what I'm doing up here this morning. Grantee, that's a very good question. Okay, and your hope for clarity is probably diminishing by the seconds. If that's you this morning, I'm just say I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. Now, Al assures me that I didn't know. Just I just happened to get this text this morning in the preaching rotation. It just happened to fall on Memorial Day weekend when half of you are gone. Maybe that's the case. It just happened. I'm not so sure. Uh, but seriously, I do want to say thank you. Al is not here because he's interpreting for me. At least I hope he's still interpreting. Uh, they're in the back. Uh, so thank you, Al. And actually, I have enjoyed preparing for this particular sermon. But let me just say this. Not all that we just read is unclear in this passage. In fact, I find the beginning, I hope you do too, the beginning and the end to be quite clear and scripturally supported elsewhere. So what we're going to do this morning is to start with that which is relatively clear. I'm speaking of verses 18, the first verse we read, and the last verse, verse 22. We're going to go through those two verses first, and then we're going to work back towards the middle. So we're going to get to all the good stuff, right? Spirits in prison, baptism saved, really? Well, We're going to answer that. But first, let's start with that which is most clear. And what's going to form a couplet. So we're going to put it up there, if we could. There we go. Verse 18 and 22. I I want me to read it together to see the flow here, to capture the flow. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. With this arrangement right here, this couplet, this end and this beginning, I think we can sincerely, sincerely make out a progression of thought in our verses. What do we see? We see Christ suffered. You see that? We see that Christ died. Got that? He then was made alive in the Spirit. And now verse 22, after that, where'd he go? He went into heaven, where he is now reigning and ruling over the angels, all spiritual authorities and powers, including the demonic spirits, over all. In an ancient hymn, which we also find in the New Testament, which parallels this text, we read in 1 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to put it on the screen. We see very similar words to what we just read in 1 Peter 3. We read, he, that's Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. Got that? He was, notice the word, vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, in his resurrection, when he was made alive in the Spirit, right? He proved to be who he claimed to be, Jesus, Son of God. And thus his words were proved to be to be true, who he is and what he said and what he promised to do. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And we'll work our way down and then taken up into glory. In other words, point one, verse this morning, Christ's righteousness, excuse me, his righteous suffering led to his vindication. The verses we just read, 18 and 22. Notice that our passage this morning in 1 Peter starts with the word for. You see that? For. In the ESV, for. Peter is giving an explanation as why, as to why it is better to suffer for doing good. If you were here last week, Al preached on that very point from verse 17. Peter now in verse 18 is saying this. It is better to suffer for de- doing good because righteous suffering leads to vindication. And Peter's saying, just look at Christ. Peter, that's God, through Peter, wants his readers to see that Christ's suffering, which were to follow by way of example, isn't the final word. Death is not the end. Death is not defeat. All the suffering that we encounter in this fallen world and particularly the righteous suffering in which we endure as Christians, it leads somewhere. It has a trajectory, which is heaven, exaltation, and glory. In fact, in these two verses, we see what's called oftentimes the great reversal. Christ went from death to life. He was put to death in the flesh. He had a fully God, a fully man, had a human body, was put to death but yet was made alive in the realm of the spirit with an incorruptible, incorruptible spiritual body. Christ not just went from death to life, he went from humiliation to exaltation. He went from the cross to the throne where he is now in a human body at the right hand of the Father, at the place of honor, reigning and ruling. Christ went, thirdly, from submission to subjugation. That is, all powers are subjected to him. Verse 22, Christ, catch this, Christ submitted to the Father and now, and dying on the cross, and now all things are subjected to him. In the previous verses that we've gone through in 1 Peter, if you've been with us in chapter 2, we're told, Christian, that we're to be subject to every human institution, Right? Peter has been calling the church to submit to ungodly authorities, to submit to ungodly masters, and even husbands. But church, this isn't for long. Just as Christ is vindicated, so will Christ's suffering and subjected church be vindicated. In other words, we are no fools. And that leads to point two. Christ's vindication belongs to those who endure Righteous suffering. Here we go, the middle portion now, verses 19 through 21. We may find ourselves, we may find ourselves here, we may find ourselves persecuted for what we believe or the way in which we live. I think you know we live in a day in which people, politicians, businesses, they're rushing. They're rushing to affirm gay marriage. They're rushing to affirm transgender rights. Why? So that they would not be, quote, on the wrong side of history as they see it. Church, you understand, if we make a stand, a biblical stand upon God's word for the definition of marriage, if we have any other biblical notions or thoughts other than the transgender movement and how they might define themselves, we'll be castigated we may find ourselves in this country at this time, quote, unquote, on the wrong side of history. But in the end, we will not find ourselves on the wrong side of God's word or eternity. We will not. You see, vindication, being right, justified in our stand that we take, this is not a matter of self-righteousness. Please don't hear that. The vindication that we are speaking of biblically it's not a matter of pride. It's not a matter of speaking to unbelievers, I told you so. No. The vindication that we're talking about here, oh, it's a matter of grace. Amazing grace. It is a declaration of God's amazing grace. Look back at verse 18 we just read to capture this grace. Christ suffered once for all, once for sins. Whose sins? Our sins. The righteous, that is He, for the unrighteous. Who are then righteous? That's us. That He might catch the verbiage, bring us to God. This is one of the sweetest passages I know. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin in our place as our substitute. Christ gave us His righteousness, and He took our unrighteousness. What an exchange! Bearing the wrath of God that we deserve on the cross. Jesus died to bring us to God, to unite us to himself in his death, but also in his resurrection. His death was our death. His exaltation is our exaltation. His glory is ours. His vindication is our vindication. And it's all by his grace. But bringing us to God also means that God is bringing us through the water, through the watery storms And flood of God's own doing, i.e. judgment. And that leads now to verses 19 and 20. Here we go. We're told that Christ, after his death and resurrection, read vindication, went, verse 19, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now I'm sure you're probably like me, and I read these verses and go, what is going on? I got a lot of questions. Invariably, where exactly did Christ go and when? How did he proclaim or preach to the spirits? And who are the spirits, by the way? And what is this prison we're talking about? And what did Christ actually tell them? Those are great questions. And the answers to such questions have filled many a commentary, many or too many of which I've read this past week, all right? But if the answer isn't so clear, we can surmise this as we read this text. This reference that we just read to the days of Noah, the flood of Noah day, must have had some relevance to Peter's readers. Why would Peter be launching into discussion about the flood? What is that? It must have had some relevance to his readers. And also Christ going to preach or to proclaim to the spirits. It must have meant something to them for him to bring it up at this point. It's not really hard to see. It would take a little time to think about it. This correlation between Noah's day, if you remember the story, whether it be from childhood or more recently, Of the flood, a worldwide flood which God brings upon the world for their unrighteousness as a form of judgment. We know the story of the ark, right? But yet Noah and his family, eight, are spared in the ark. Well, We know the story, but I think there's a correlation here between Noah's day and yet Peter's day. If you've been with us, this book is about addressing Christians who are suffering, who are suffering for their faith, righteously, real persecution, See, like Noah, these Christians are a small, persecuted minority surrounded by a majority that is disobedient to God. Yet as those of Noah family, as they were delivered, so will you be as well. I believe Peter is speaking to this persecuted minority in the Middle East and beyond. To give them encouragement, to give them hope that just as this persecuted minority was spared in the flood and saved and delivered and vindicated, so will you be, O oh, suffering Christian. Do you see it? I mean, think about living in Noah's day. I mean, just you can imagine the fanciful dialogue, can't you? Hey, Noah, checked out the forecast lately? Sunny, zero percent chance of rain. Just like the last ninety-nine years. By the way, Noah, how's that little ark of yours coming anyway? How about your son? Hey, Shem, Ham, Japheth, why don't you come out to play? What's all this talk? Your daddy talking about sin and righteousness and judgment and flood. Noah, wake up! Join the 25th century BC. It ain't happening. False hope. Get with the program. You got it, right? See, was it really that different in Peter's day? Living in a paganistic cult worship of the Roman Empire? The taunts? The ridicule? The misunderstanding? The opposition? The persecution? Is it really that much different for us today? Who make us stand for Christ? When vindication seems so slow in coming? Now, with that in mind, let us venture to make some interpretation, okay, of all this. Who are the spirits? Well, someone interpret the spirits that's being referred to here as those unsaved people that lived on the earth during Noah's time. And thus, it was the pre-incarnate Christ. At some point... In the past, Christ preached the gospel to these unbelievers through Noah. It says in first Peter excuse me Peter's second letter, second Peter two, that Noah was a herald of righteousness. We also read elsewhere in the scripture that the spirit of Jesus spoke and preached through the Old Testament prophets. Could it be that Jesus in his preincarnate form was? preaching or proclaiming the gospel to those of Noah's day who did not believe, who were disobedient, and yes, judged. That could be one interpretation. It's certainly a possible one. But we must consider this an important observation. Spirits, this word spirits, plural, in the New Testament, is almost exclusively never used to refer to people. In the New Testament, if a writer wanted to refer to a dead person, he's referred to as a soul or the souls of those who have perished, not spirits. In the New Testament, the word for spirits consistently speaks of spiritual beings, not of humans. So, another possible interpretation that we might want to consider it's that Christ, upon his resurrection, went and proclaimed his resurrection and his triumph to the fallen angels of Noah's day. We're not going to go there, but if you read the fascinating story of the flood and you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, you're going to read about the fallen angels, sons of God, fallen angels who came down to earth to cohabitate with Noah's contemporaries. So perhaps Jesus, upon resurrection, went back and proclaimed triumph and victory over these very sons of God, these fallen angels. Now that's kind of weird when you hear that. It's in the Bible, check it out, Genesis 6. Also 2 Peter and Jude as well, there's reference. In fact, Peter's readers wouldn't have been very familiar with this story. There's a fair amount of extra-biblical literature that speaks about this story, these fallen angels. But we're left with the conclusion, what encouragement and hope would it give to Peter's readers to know that Christ went back and preached these fallen angels? Interesting, but helpful? Comforting? I'm not so sure. So this is my proposal. Number three, that upon Christ's resurrection, he went and proclaimed his victory over the demonic spirits, the demonic spirits who were formerly active in the days of Noah among those who were disobedient to God. These very demonic spirits who not only were active in Noah's day, but were active in Peter's day as well and are active today among us as well. That Bring some encouragement and hope. Yeah, those spirits that were active and that are active today, Peter's talking to readers, and those who are persecuting you, Christ has gone and proclaimed triumph. And it's the same for you today, oh Christian, as well. I find that to be encouraging and helpful. To quote the word commentary here, the disobedient spirits of long ago still exist. On the screen there, great. And it is not unlikely that Peter sees their influence behind the ridicule and slander of pagans actively opposed to the Christian movement in his day. If Christ had visited the spirits, violated their sanctuaries, by the way, this word prison, it's only used once in the New Testament, it could mean refuge, and brought them under subjection, catch this, then Christians have nothing to fear from the interrogation and insults of those who denounce their way of life. That's helpful. But wherever you land on this interpretative question, please do not believe there is any warrant that Christ, upon resurrection, descended into hell and preached the gospel to those in hell to give them a second chance. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you were taught that. Let me just say very succinctly, when Christ was dying on the cross, hanging on the cross, his last words are this, it is finished. That was it. It's appointed in Hebrews 9, for man to die and then judgment. There are no second chances upon death, okay? So we must reject that notion biblically. All right. But any of those three could be the interpretation. I've given you mine, but let's move on. And I think this last one, That he went to preach triumph and vindication over his enemies. Yes, demonic spirits in the spiritual realm is well supported as well in other places. See, church, we suffer. You know it, I know it. We are opposed. Yes, there are still demonic spirits today. Yes, the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion. We're getting there. It's in 1 Peter 5, right? But we need not fear. However, the enemy manifests itself. Hold on. Victory and vindication is coming. To quote the beloved verse, Philippians 2 2, verses 9 and 11 in your notes. Speaking of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, you will be ridiculed. Yes, you will be taunted, as those in Noah's day were. But we will be vindicated as we're brought through the water of death, the flood of destruction, and established upon the rock. Who is Jesus, upon which every enemy must bow? A couple of weeks ago, Cindy and I were really kind of passing through New Orleans. It was my first time uh, in that city, and I was really just interested to just see the aftermath, the results of Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, right back in 2005. So we went to Lake Pontchartrain and saw a part of the levee which had broken, had broke and couldn't hold back that storm surge that flooded much of New Orleans. If you recall, on average, New Orleans is one or two feet below sea level. So your confidence is in this levee, okay? (laughs) To hold back the seawater. And as you're aware, it was that levee which broke. What was interesting is I saw many homes that 11 years later were still abandoned. But I also saw a variety of new homes as well. Renovated homes that were right next to the lake and just behind this reconstructed levee. You know what my first thought was? (laughs) There's no way I'd put my trust in that levee. No way. You see, it's not a question for us in New Orleans for that matter if another big storm will come. The only question is when, okay? When will the floods come? Church, the storms of life, they will come. The storm of God's judgment and wrath are coming as well. You can build your man made levees with all your engineering skill, okay? Mental attitude, with all your money, all your sweat equity, or whatever else you're trusting in. But it won't save you. The question on that day, that day, of judgment is this. What are you building your life upon? Jesus concluded his famous sermon on the Mount with these words, using the very imagery of a flood. We read in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, these familiar words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock It was he who built his house upon the rock who was saved, who was vindicated, who was proven to be wise and right. And that rock was God's word. That rock is God's living word, Jesus. Oh, church, take comfort and assurance. Nonbeliever, take warning. I opened this morning we're talking about the need to have a vision that extends beyond today's troubles, right, or tomorrow. To have a vision and sight that is able to see beyond your immediate circumstances. Do you realize we've been given a picture to help us with just that? We've been given a means of grace to help us a means of grace to remind us of God's saving grace and saving us and resurrecting us and in vindicating us. You know what it's called? It's called baptism. And that leads to verse 21. Baptism, look at the words, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to this. What is this? The great flood or waters through which Noah and his family were delivered and saved. You see, baptism corresponds to this flood event. The flood event of Noah's day, of his judgment upon the people in which he flooded the earth but saved eight through the ark, pre-shadowed. What did pre-shadow? Baptism. That event pointed to baptism in the New Testament. The very type of salvation we have received. What is that salvation that we have received? It's this. It's salvation Through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Paul's essentially saying to the suffering Christian, just as Noah and his family was brought through the destruction and judgment of the floodwaters, you also would be brought to the judgment on that future day when God will destroy the ungodly. Let's look at the next part. Verse 21. Baptism was corresponds to this the flood during Noah's day, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This baptism, now saves you? Now if your eyebrows went up there, you go, whoa, wait a sec, pause, time out. That's good, okay, that's good. That's how you ought to be thinking. And certainly there are churches, I would say cults, who would go to this verse and say, yes, it is the actual act of baptism which saves you. No, that's not what Peter is referring to. Peter is not contradicting himself here, let alone the Bible, let alone himself and what he has just said. I believe most of us here are well taught that baptism in itself cannot save. No act of our own. Can save us. Only the act of God through Jesus Christ can save us. In fact, Peter has already established that very point back in verse 18. We read it. It is Christ, the righteous one, who died for who? Us, the unrighteous. To what? Bring us to God. It's grace. You understand? We cannot bring ourselves to God. We were dead in our sins. It's impossible. But it's God alone through Jesus who brings us to God, who unites us to him, who reconciles us to him. But bringing us to God also means bringing us through judgment, through the stormy waters and flood. That's what I believe Peter is establishing here. See, baptism saves us, he even says it, right? Not not as a removal of dirt from the body, in other words, baptism doesn't have some magical quality to purify or to save us. No, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Okay, okay. I want you there. What's this appeal stuff? Okay, this appeal. Read faith. We are saved as an appeal to God. Okay, baptism is an, is an appeal. This. Faith is an appeal, okay, is an appeal for forgiveness in Christ Jesus based on the grounded, objective work of Jesus. This word appeal could also mean a pledge as well. It's a pledge to remain faithful to our profession of faith and thus maintain a good conscience. Whatever the case may be, this is what I believe It sounds like, church, this is what I believe Peter is saying. Yes, I know, I personally know that I deserve sin and judgment. I was that unrighteous person for which the righteous one died. Yes, I know. I know I have real enemies. There are people out there, in a demonic world as well, who want me to fall, But I know, and I maintain, that I will persevere to the end and be saved and vindicated. Why? Because I have been united with Christ in death and in resurrection life. I have been delivered from the storms and the waters of judgment and brought up to new life. Victorious, vindicated in Christ. That is my appeal, and I'm sticking to it. And I have a good conscience. Not because of what I've done, because it's Christ's righteousness. I belong to him. You see it? That's what we're talking about. And what Peter says is, your baptism tells you this. Remember it. Baptizing my oldest two children was a profound joy. Had the opportunity to do that last year. And and there's one photo I've often looked at. I'm going to put it up there. It's a photo of my son... CJ, and I love this photo for so many reasons. I don't know if you can it's kind of hard. I don't know if we can do the lights, it's okay. I love this for so many reasons. CJ has just come up out of the water. I love his expression, his smile. I love his posture as well. And I love the expression. I've gone around and just looked at people and their smiles. And you can't see it here. It's actually on the website. You can check it out. It's pretty cool. It's looking at the delight and just remembering that moment. See, baptism isn't just about dunking a person. It's about coming up, being delivered to the judgment and the floods and coming up to new life. That's why I love the posture, man, you know? See, so you got your hands clenched there, standing strong, wet t-shirt, you know? Yeah, muscular chest, man. It's like Superman, you know? I'm here, you know? It's like, yeah! No, no, I'm just going to bear CJ. No, but I am. What pastors. Yeah, what pastors do, you, right? There's children. No, um... See, we're not the superhero, but we have a superhero who has delivered us. And baptism reminds us of just that. So yes, when we say, when Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that baptism is our union with Christ and his death and his resurrection, it's true. But what Peter is bringing to the table here is something else we don't want to think about. Your baptism is your submersion into the flood, into the stormy waters of judgment, and it's being brought out of it through the resurrection of Christ to new life, to victory and vindication. And Peter wants his readers to know that and to remember that. And so do I this morning. Do you get it? That's just didn't get it. Do, do you like feel it? Peter is talking to suffering Christians who are on the aim of fire and he's giving them a vision and a grace and a hope that extends beyond today's travails and tomorrow's troubles. And this very picture picture or vision is found in your baptism, O Christian. Commentator Juan Sanchez sums it up well. He says this, whatever we may suffer and whenever we come to die, we can look back at our baptism and remember that we have been saved from the floodwaters of God's judgment through Jesus' resurrection and will be vindicated and glorified at the day, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, Christian, our hope is not in vain. There are times when we need, pardon the phrase, a little kick-butt theology. We got that today. Some of us, we need that today as well. See, listen, I think we've been taught here, we've been going through 1 Peter, there is a time and a place for suffering and grieving. And there is a purpose in suffering. Peter's been talking about it now for almost three, yeah, three chapters But there's also a time to take courage, to take hope, and to take action, knowing that we are not left in our suffering. Christ is our victor, and he is reigning and ruling, and he has the final word. That suffering is not the final word. Death and defeat is not the final word. It's victory. It's vindication for all those who have staked their life and their reputation upon Jesus and as I was preparing this message I just, I just wondered just for some of you right here this morning if God just saying the time of mourning is over now I don't want to rush it for some of you grieving is important and that's necessary but for some of you there, there's been a lot of mourning there's been a lot of suffering and God's just saying that's right but is it today, a day of freedom, a day of release, that there is joy to be had today, a sweet joy, knowing that you are no fool for the choices you have made. You're no fool for the choices you've made to follow Christ. You are no fool for the choice to remain or to be at Palm Vista. You are no fool because the pathway of Christ Leads to suffering. But it also leads us through suffering. To that victory and vindication of which we speak. The day of judgment of mankind is coming. And for the suffering Christian, it will mean vindication at last. Stand tall. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't have that confidence... That I'm speaking about, that Peter is speaking about, I would love to talk to you this morning. I would love to pray for you. It's going to take initiation on your part. I don't know who you are, but I would love to pray for you. If you wouldn't feel comfortable with that, there may be a person or friend that you know here or that brought you. Would you talk to them? We want to pray for you this morning that you would have this confidence. Secondly, if you're here, you're a professing believer in Christ Jesus. And you have never been baptized. Oh, please, don't delay. Al or I would love to talk to you today. Maybe you thought, well, you know what? Yeah, that baptism stuff, it doesn't save you. And you know, it's kind of a ritual of the church. It doesn't really seem to have much spiritual significance, or at least meaning to me. You understand baptism is a means of grace that God has given every believer in our fight for faith not only pleasing to the Lord, how good it would be for your soul to make that public stance and to be baptized. If that's you, would love to talk to you about that even today. Well, I hope you see differently as a result of today's passage that baptism is a means of grace for you and for me. Yes, when the storms rage. With that in mind, let us pray. If I can invite Zeke to come on up. So blessed be the name of the Lord. And as they transition, just please, quite as possible, I'd like to pray for us and to repair our hearts. Well, Lord, would you lift our eyes? It's so hard, it's so hard so many times, Lord, to see beyond our immediate circumstances. We feel like we're in a mire, we're in a muck, we're in a pit. Sometimes it's a despair. Lord, when life closes in around us and there is darkness, but Lord, would you lift us out of that pit as we look beyond our circumstances to you, O Christ? Lord, that suffering is not the end. There is glory to come. May that animate our souls. May that encourage us this morning. Would you pour out hope into our hearts as a result of this word preached and the words we're about to sing? We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, we're going to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. You may be aware that these are the words of Job. You can look it up. End of Job chapter one. You know the story of Job? He lost everything. A righteous man, which everything was taken away. And yet he could say, blessed be the name of the Lord. How could Job say, blessed be the name of the Lord? because of what we're talking about today. And if you know the rest of the story, the end of Job, how does it end? All that was taken from Job was restored and more. He was vindicated, as was God for his righteous choice in doing that, okay? We may never be vindicated in that way here on earth, but we will be in eternity, okay? That is ours as well. So with that, let us sing, whatever situation you're in right now, let's sing in the faith, okay? In faith, blessed be in the name of the Lord.